If you're new with us, we've been studying the book of Genesis in Sunday messages, still in the first chapter for the fifth week, and today we look at a new work of God, the creation of man in His image. We'll read a rather short text, just verses 26 and 27, and then jump to what is actually a recapitulation of the creation of man, verse 7 in chapter 2. And I'll, I'm hoping to be two weeks just in looking at these three verses, and then yet another week in looking at the charge of God from verse 28 and following as to what man was to do in this creation that God had made. We're trying to carefully put in place these, I think of them as cornerstones or foundation blocks that really form a base on which so much of the rest of the Scripture stands. So listen to this short passage of God's Word, Genesis 1, beginning at 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. And then over in the next chapter, just a word that adds something to this, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Our Father, help us to understand things as profound as this. We do not see every intricacy and nuance that we might like to have explained, but you have revealed great truths here. Help us to stand before them, to allow them to shape our thinking and our understanding of ourselves and your world. For Jesus' sake, amen. Even if you have never been to Rome, you probably have some awareness of the vaulted ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in that city of Rome. You probably know it was the format for the artist Michelangelo to depict, among other things, the work of God in creation, a great ceiling much larger than this, completely covered with artworks. It's one of those tourist places where you really go out with a stiff neck after looking at the wonders that that artist put there in years of work. And again, even if you haven't seen it in person, and I have not, you've seen the pictures that really form the central focus for that whole array of depictions. The scene where God himself is, is pictured, of course, we, we don't know <laughs> God's appearance, and Michelangelo was being very fanciful to picture God as an old man with flowing beard, but with his outstretched hand, and there is Adam with a muscular body laying on the earth kind of languidly, lifting his hand, and the outstretched hand of God comes toward the hand of the man. And possibly one of the most brilliant things I think an artist ever did was to leave that gap between the hand of God 
and the hand of man. Because he was creating a tension and an expectation in the mind of the viewer as you looked at that and thought, God is about to do something there. And I at least have a vague idea that the Bible says God did something unique with the man. And and it's about to happen. That creature is about to be endowed and enlivened in a way that will make him unique from everything else God made. And there will be a blaze of God-likeness about him that cannot be said of other animals or creatures. Well, this first chapter of Genesis is simply loaded with cornerstone events, which, as I said a moment ago, build a kind of foundation. And we've got to get the foundation right. And then the rest of the structure of the Bible will rest upon it because so often various things will be referred back to, questions about marriage. Jesus will be asked and he will say, well, it was not that way from the beginning. And he'll remind them about this kind of beginning back here in Genesis. Go back to the foundation, he says. Well, here we are considering some issues about the creation of mankind, both today and next week. Now, I trust I can clear away this confusion and say when I use the word mankind or man, I'm speaking in the generic understanding of that that includes men and women, male and female. He created them, it says here, and we'll have much more to say in the end of chapter 2 about the creation of woman and the differentiation of man and woman's, but that's not before us today. You know, it, it may sound from a human standpoint kind of arrogant when we say mankind, man and woman, were the crown, the most important event in all the things that God created. Perhaps you have an imagination and you say, well, if I was a fish... I wouldn't think that way. I would think that fish were the most important. And, and what happens in the sea is the center of the earth. And those land animals are, are merely incidental, especially the two-legged ones that set hooks and try to deceive us and catch us. That's probably how fish think, if they think. But we're going on the basis of what the Bible actually teaches. And it does teach that there is this unique category for mankind. That we are the crown. We are the epitome of what God made. He gave to us things that he did not give to his other creatures. A consciousness of God. A strange kind of freedom that, that makes us like God in being able to choose and exercise freedom according to what we know. And that same freedom, of course, can get us in trouble and lead us into sin a great intelligence. We're going to talk about these things in a few minutes that we have that other animals don't have. No animal is able to glorify God. You know, we say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Animals aren't doing that, at least not in a conscious way. They might glorify God by their mere existence, by, the, by their wonderful design and the patterns by which they carry out their lives because the Creator made them, in a sense, to glorify Himself. But they're not in their minds saying glory to God in the highest because they're incapable of it. Scripture says God made Adam, and by the way, the name Adam simply means man. It's the Hebrew word for man. God made this man with unparalleled dignity. 
And yet he made him out of the same physical stuff of the earth that other living creatures are made of, the same kinds of chromosomes and, and DNA information shape him and cause him to grow and develop as cause any animal to grow and develop. We're the same as animals, and yet we're dynamically different because of the Spirit of God that was given to Adam and his descendants and to us alone. In a phrase, you might summarize everything I'm going to say today by saying, made from earth, we are bound for glory. We truly are made from earth, but we also are bound for a realization of the glory of God. Now, you see, as spirit, God chooses to remain invisible. The Scriptures teach that in many ways. People don't see the form of God. Moses asked to, and God said, no, you're not going to see me, not in the direct way you're talking about. You're going to see my works. You're going to, you're going to sense that I've passed by, just as you know, people who evacuated Galveston didn't see the storm come and destroy their homes and knock down the trees, but they came back, and they certainly knew the storm had been there. And that's the way God is. We see his works. We see what he does. But God said, you're not going to see my form. Michelangelo was, was really, you know, carrying imagination too far when he painted God as, as an old man with a flowing beard. God's not that way. He hasn't given us his visible representational image. He is the invisible God. He is spirit. But he put a representation of himself in the final creature he made, man and woman. Now, we, of course, have blighted his likeness. We have wrecked it. Adam, you could say, you know that train wreck we had in Los Angeles? What a terrible thing, two trains colliding. with. I guess they didn't even put the brakes on. Well, you could say Genesis 3 is going to represent a train wreck, a train wreck of humanity. With this image of God in them, the man and the woman blighted that image, damaged it like a a mirror that a a cracks radiated out through the whole mirror. It's not as though you can't see in the mirror anymore, but, but you certainly can't see things the way the mirror was made to reflect them. The image of God in man is seen perfectly one place and one place only, and that is in Jesus Christ. We still imperfectly display his image. We do it Because of sin, you can barely see anything of God in us at times. And certainly in some representations of humanity, you would say, what has that to do with God at all? And yet in in most of us and many times, there are glimpses and patterns of the workmanship of God that we look and we say, that certainly didn't come from our animal nature. That certainly didn't come by a base instinct responding to get food or fulfill its lust or something like that. That came from somewhere else. And we also learn this wonderful fact that every person who is being made a new creation by faith in Jesus Christ is wonderfully being restored to the splendor of our Maker's original image and pattern. And one day, that work will be complete. Well, first of all today, I want to look at verse 26 of chapter 1. And there see this one phrase, the climax of God's creative commands. We've heard these various commands. Let there be light. Let there be this. 
and something else. Now this great command comes, let us make man. The climax of God's creative commands is this, let us make man. There are times in a stage play or a musical, if you watch enough of them, you you learn the devices and the patterns that authors of dramas use. And one device that's used sometimes in plays is called a soliloquy. When one key character, you know, certain things have happened, maybe the character's in some kind of a dilemma, and that person's on stage alone for a period of time, and they talk out their thoughts. You are actually listening to the thoughts of that individual. I think of the old musical by Rodgers and Hammerstein, Carousel, where Billy Bigelow, the carnival barker, is reflecting on the impending birth of his son, and he gets all excited about my boy Bill. And he builds up a big image of what it's going to be like to be the father to a son, and then suddenly it dawns on him, what if it's a daughter? Which, of course, it's going to be. And he gives his soliloquy, his thoughts of what that involves. Well, you might think of that dramatic device, maybe it would help you a little bit to say that That's a bit of what's at work here in God saying, let us make man. Here's our purpose, our purpose. At this point, having created all the other things, let us now do something very unique. Now, of course, the plural pronouns here have drawn great attention. My wife actually had a discussion with our neighbor just a little while ago, and Uh, I think somehow he knows I'm a minister and he goes to another church, but she was saying I was preaching on Genesis. And he said, Genesis, well, you know, it's always interested me that it says, let us in Genesis. And Carol started telling him that, well, that was about the Trinity. And it was a new thought to him. He hadn't considered that idea. Well, Bible interpreters have have talked this over and and, uh, debated this and said, well, what does this mean? Why why are, are, are these pronouns? Let us do this. It's it's a very strange way to sort of speak here. And one thought has come from some interpreters who say, well, we think this is a use of what the ancient world called the royal we. Now, you encounter this when a king or an emperor, I think actually the pope speaks this way even today. He doesn't use a first-person pronoun when talking about what he's going to do because he is so powerful that he represents everybody else. And so he says, we are going to sign this decree. That doesn't mean everybody in the realm is going to sign the decree. It means the king's going to sign it. But it's the royal we, the king collectively representing a great body of people. There are those who who think it's that. But the support for that really is pretty slender. Another suggestion is made here, an interesting one, that says, well, maybe this is God consulting with other heavenly beings. We haven't been told about them yet, and yet later in the Scripture it's implied that there were angels and there were beings, rulers, you know, they're, they're alluded to without being spelled out where they came from or when. Maybe this was God sort of consulting the heavenly court. Well, those are interesting thoughts, but neither of those concepts really fits the full teaching and understanding we have of the Scripture. Now, we would not claim, and it's hard to claim, that we have a full-fledged doctrine of the Trinity in the first chapter of Genesis, Father, Son, and Spirit. That hasn't been fleshed out. 
although we have heard about the Spirit. The Spirit in the very beginning there, present in the creation, brooding over the unformed chaos of the creation. And the New Testament, of course, is later going to teach us, John chapter 1, that the Word, Christ, was present from the beginning. Colossians chapter 1 teaches that all things were created by Him, Christ, and for Him. And so we take the Bible as a unity, and we take things that are made explicit in later portions of the Scripture and believe that they are implicit in earlier portions. The Bible is one book. And even though the Trinity has not been spelled out for us at this point, there is no other really logical explanation for what let us can mean, except that the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, in some sense we're being made to understand here, consulted together and agreed upon their purpose that they would make mankind, I'm sure knowing, of course God knew what would happen, to mankind. God knew the Garden of Eden would come. He knew about their sin. He knew about their fall and everything that would work out from that. And yet he created this as his great crowning initiative and determined to see it through to the end. Now, another thing to point out here about this thought of let us make man and, and then what else is said in verse 27 or I'm sorry, moving on to 27 actually, from 26, is to see that the verb of verse 27 is that word again, created. And I remind you that word isn't used as much in chapter 1 as you might think. It's actually used three times in chapter 1. And there are many theologians who believe that each use of that word marks a kind of milestone in chapter 1. In the very first verse, it says God created the heavens and the earth, the elements, the, the basic stuff, the energy that caused us to have a universe. Then in verse 21 comes the next occurrence of created when it's saying that he created the great living creatures. And now comes this third use of the word. Maybe some would say we're making too much of it, but when a word is used selectively, you know, it says he made other things but three times it says he created. In verse 27, it says God created man in his own image, male and female. It seems that we're being told here that in accord with the meaning of to create, which, remember, is to bring something out of nothing, to start a new chapter, if you will, to make something that didn't exist before, that we're being told that the creation of mankind is a qualitatively distinct step away from all the other mammals and animals that had been created before this, significant as they are. And I would think from that point alone, we have one of our evidences to say that man is not merely the end product of a line of chance evolution from lower animals. He represents something new, something distinct. Yes, we know he has kinship by his DNA and and we'll speak about that again in a moment too for, with the animals. But yet, here's a new initiative by God. And by the way, next Sunday, I think I'll get into this uh, more, perhaps satisfying a little better what you're, some of the things you're thinking about as, as you think about, well, what about so-called ancient man or caveman, Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, so on. We're going to talk about that next time, I promise, Lord willing. But we believe that Adam is a distinct new creation. 
This word create indicates that he is not merely a branch off something previously made. All right, let's go on then in the second point and jump to chapter 2, verse 7, where we read a kind of recapitulation, uh, looking back again on what has been done, filling in a little more information for us in this verse, and telling us that we were made from dust, but we are bound for glory. There's very important information here in verse 7 of chapter 2. Two different phrases that, that have to be understood together. First, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Now, we, we can't help but form pictures in our mind, can we, of, of things like this. We say, well, how did God make man? Well, I don't know about you, but I think of first grade or kindergarten, and the, when they sat us down at those low tables, you know, in those little bitty chairs, if I sat in them today, my knees would be in my face, but, and they, they plunked down in front of us a blob of clay. Here, Michael, make something. So I took clay, and after it hardened, I took it home to Mom and said, Mom, here, this is you. And Mom rejoiced, didn't look a bit like her, but she thought it was great. Don't we picture some idea that God sort of taking a blob of earth and, and shaping it, making it from the dust, making man a little mud man? Well, you see, these kinds of literalistic pictures don't entirely help us. The word dust is actually a loaded word, loaded with meaning and, and really loaded with symbolism. It conveys the idea of lowliness and humility, humble origin, even worthlessness. Psalm 90 reminds us that after death, our bodies, having no further earthly value, will return to the substances that they came from. Return to dust, you sons of men, says Psalm 90. Genesis 3.19 says, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Dust keeps us humble, I guess you would say. It reminds us that what we're made of is really not all that glorious. And in fact, another use of the word dust in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is in the context of grieving or acts of shame. You know, people would put dust on their heads when they were grieving to show that they were bereaved and and bereft. Matthew Henry, the old commentator, has a, a word here that's helpful, as he often does. He said, man was not made from gold dust, nor of diamond dust, but common dust, as from the very elements of the earth. And I think that's what Genesis is telling us. It's reminding us that we didn't begin our lives as angels. We were made from a creaturely substance, the same substance other creatures are made of. So yes, it's no mere coincidence that our DNA, you know, they tell us that chimpanzees' DNA is very, very similar to us. And then right away the conclusion is, well, we have to have a common ancestor. Well, we agree with them that the DNA is the same. That's obvious. The microscope reveals it. But we reject the conclusion that it means we have a direct linkage, that there was no supernatural act, and that we are different. We are different. But this is telling us it's not our biological composition that makes us different or makes us glorious. Biologically, in substance, we are merely of this earth, and we will return to this earth. We are creatures from the dust. But then, 
we're taught something that seems almost op- opposite, and it seems to cancel the first out. But I think we have to hold on to the first thing while listening to the second thing. God breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Old Testament word in Hebrew for breath is one of those wonderful words. When you learn the Hebrew language, you have to make your tongue do some funny things. You pronounce it ruach. You have to get a sound in the back of your throat. The ruach of God. The breath of God. And guess what? It's the same word for the Spirit of God. And it's not coincidental that those words have the same meaning. Here is God aspirating, if you will, his spirit, his very essence, his presence into Adam. Now, that's a mystery. We don't know exactly what that means, but it's something being done that was not done for the other creatures. We're creatures like a lion, like a gopher. I actually know some people who look like gophers, but, well. But we have the Spirit of God. And no gopher has that. We have the breath of God in us. We're not only creatures, we are persons. And so we don't simply live by animal reflexes and instincts and hungers and and base drives. We live according to minds that can think. And a moral instinct and a conscience and a soul that breathes with the Spirit of God. He's given us this marvelous freedom. We'll talk more about that later on when we get to Genesis 3, the freedom that he gave us. And why did, why did God give us freedom? Why didn't he just make us puppets to dance on the end of his string and we always would have done what he wanted to? Well, we'll get to that one. But he gave us the ability to be compassionate to one another. You know, not just to take our claws and rip the next person apart if, if they're going after the same piece of food we are. But to act in ways that are godlike, even though we also, by that will's exercise, can act shamefully. Man was made, the text says, a living soul. We are not only conscious as animals are, we have a consciousness about ourselves. We're not only alive, we know that we're alive, and we ponder the meaning of life and death, and we are permitted to know him who gave us life. This is unique with us. Even though we're made of dust, we're bound for glory. Well, as we're closing out here for today, and we are going to come back to this same subject, let me go back to verse 27 and another word that has to be pondered in this whole thing. The word, the image, or the likeness, and they really mean the same thing. They don't mean two different things. The image of God. We were made in the image of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to bear the image of God? I've hinted at it a little bit already. In Hebrew, the word image means a carved-out likeness. Think of a statue. Think of a bust. You know, we have, you go to Washington and you see these head and shoulders busts of the great leaders of the past. And in some cases, they were even made from what were called death masks as they would put plaster over the dead man's face and then take the reversed image and cast something from that, and you'd have the, the exact face. Well, if you had a, a bust made of yourself and a really good job was done, your friends and family would look at it and say, hey, it's Charles. I recognize him immediately. It's his image. 
You know what great Aunt Betty means when she comes and sees her, her little, you know, grandnephew for the first time and says, why, he's the spitting image of his dad. You know what she means. She sees the face of his father in this child. Well, that's talking about physical image, of course. Our text is not talking about physical image, and that's why it's difficult to understand it. It's talking about representations of God by which God can be recognized in us that are not merely physical. God-like characteristics that are put in humanity. Now, this is a big subject, and believe it or not, I have five really quick points to give you, and each one's very, very quick, of just glimpses of the definition of this and and what it looks like that we recognize in humanity. First of all, we have spirituality. We are conscious of God. We bring Him praise and honor and obedience. As far as I know, moles, you know, don't don't stand up in line and sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. Maybe somebody's going to do some mole study to reveal they're doing things we don't know that they're doing. But moles don't sing the doxology. We are created to be conscious of our Creator. We're like a mirror held up to God the way the moon is to the sun. The moon has no light of its own. It's a dead rock. But it reflects the sun. We are able to do that. We are able to reflect the knowledge of God. A writer named Anthony Hokema said, God commanded his creatures never to make graven images of him since he had already created an image of himself in mankind a walking, talking image. And if you wish to glimpse something, at least, of what God is like, then look at his most distinguished creature, which is his image, man. We actually have spirituality to reflect God. More about that later. We have intellect. We can think. We can solve problems, complex problems. Animals can do it on a simple basis. Animals have a kind of memory and certain kind of reasoning. Rats can be taught to find their way through mazes, and dolphins and horses have fairly high-level intelligence. But, you know, as far as I know, the chimpanzees don't have philosophers. Remember that question we talked about a few weeks ago, why is there something instead of nothing? I don't believe the animal kingdom has ever pondered that question. I don't believe the animal kingdom has ever stopped and thought if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there with ears to hear it, does it make a sound? You know, that's one of the famous questions of philosophy. That's abstract thinking. Human beings have abstract thinking. Animals do not. We think on levels far beyond the animal kingdom. We also have, thirdly, morality. There's right and wrong. There are things that are inbred in us and in every culture. There's some kind of an instinct that to kill another person with deliberate volition is wrong. Now, there may be cultures that do it more willingly or more randomly or something or according to different standards than we do it, but there's always that innate instinct that certain things are wrong and certain things are right. Of course, culture has a lot to do with shaping morality and giving it particular standards of what you do and what you don't do. But there's this sense in which there's a moral standard in man that allows us often to give up self-interest. You know, an animal, you've got five lions and uh, an animal's been killed, you've got a real competition. All five of them are, are trying to get the biggest share of that carcass. 
and they're getting the others out of their way and acting fierce. And what's the interest? Fill my belly. That's the only interest. Not, oh, I'll stand aside and let you have something. That requires a human sacrifice of self-interest. When a soldier in war falls with conscious volition on a grenade to save the soldiers near him, what is that? That is an instinct of morality and self-sacrifice that animals don't have. Then, too, fourthly, we have language skills. Now, you'll tell me, yes, animals can communicate. They can. Whales apparently can communicate. We're just beginning to learn all the ways that they communicate. You know, one animal has some kind of a cry that tells four others, hey, there's food over here. But they don't write poetry They don't have the nuanced use of language and complex definition that man has. And why do we have language with the complexity that we have it? We say because God is a speaking God. Because he makes himself known in words through inspired authors so we can understand him. He gave us words. And then the last aspect I'll mention for today is what I will call artistry. We alone of all God's creatures can appreciate beauty in a sunset or a musical sonata or a painting and then seek to reproduce it ourselves in art and music. Animals do not have music. One of God's most unique gifts to humanity. This God who allows us to sing and use songs to praise him, Zephaniah, The obscure little prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, tells us why. It's because God himself rejoices over us with singing. Well, those are just some hints. Spirituality, intellect, morality, language, artistry. There's more you could talk about. But we are unique. God has gifted us and made us like himself. We've abused his gifts. Now, as I close today, you must see once more that the divine image of God was perfectly displayed without flaw just one time in one man, and it wasn't Adam. It was the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 says Christ is the image, the image, the excellent image of the invisible God. You won't see God better than seeing him in him. We, as rebels against the image of God, have marred that image and obscured it and broken it, and we despair. We say, how could I I have behaved like that? How could God be in my life if I could do that? But the wonderful truth of the gospel of salvation is that what God is actually doing through Christ is restoring his image in men and women. Colossians 3.10 says the Christian is being renewed in the image of his creator. Romans 8.29 says when God calls you to faith and a new life in Christ, quote, you are one of those who are predestined to be conformed to the likeness, the image of his son. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us as we grow in our Christian lives, We, quote, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. You see what a grand thing the Scripture is? 
God put his image in man. We wrecked it. But by salvation, through grace, by faith in Jesus Christ, in his cross and resurrection, our creator and father is determined that he will have people who will be his mirrors, who will reflect his image. And in the end, we will do that perfectly when we behold him face to face. To God be the glory. Father, teach us more about this great subject. We're humbled to know that we were this important project you had. We're thankful to know that in Christ, the project was not in vain. Amen.